Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a Fun in the Sun episode, all about that tale of teenagers in trouble. I know what you did last summer. Take a ride with us as we follow four felonious future stars, from the young adult novel to the silver screen, as they try to keep a secret, keep out of jail, and keep their heads. So, take a dip, then take revenge, as we present Boys and Ghouls, Episode 51, I Know What You Did Last Summer. The creator of Scream has done it again. Oh my gosh. I think he's dead. We can't just leave him here. Oh, tell me, little Miss Prelaw, what's the charge for manslaughter? We make a pact. Right here and now we take the Sora grave. For the last year, four friends have kept a secret, but not all secrets stay buried. Somebody sent this to me. Oh, my God. Someone knows. I know what you did last summer. Ooh. What they thought would be a new beginning. Toast to us. Is becoming a dead end. Somebody tried to kill you last night. We have to go to the police. And the mistake they made. It was an accident. There was no accident. It was murder. Is coming back to haunt them. Oh, my God. He's after me, too. I got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. <laughs> Julie gets a body in a trunk and you get a letter? That's balanced. She's waiting for us to unravel. The wait is over. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? Hello? So, Kat. Yeah? I know what you did last summer. What? How do you know? Mostly hung out by the pool. Oh, I wish. I think I spent like two days hanging out by the pool last summer. But I'll tell you what I didn't do is murder anyone, which I, I count as a win. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I like how from time to time you want credit for not killing anybody. Yes, people are awful, and they piss me off a lot. Well, if you were to be like the killer in I Know What You Did Last Summer, you wouldn't be very spontaneous about it. You would wait like a whole year. Yeah. Let it simmer. Sleep on it. Yeah. Sleep on it 360 plus times. And then at the end of the year, if you're still feeling pretty raw, then you go on a rampage. You know, I'm impressed because uh, I don't think I have that kind of patience. I think if I think if if I were to ever murder someone in cold blood, it would be it wouldn't be so calculated because I think if given enough time, I would either be too lazy or I would have like calmed down about it. You're more of a crime of passion. Kind Absolutely. Of person. What about you? Uh, I'd probably calculate. Yeah, I would have predicted that as well. I'm just up in my own head about everything else. Probably murder, too. Yeah. Yeah. I know it. I know it. You'd make notes. You'd make copious notes. <laughs> in secret notebooks. It would be very well executed. Ho <laughs> oh, ho! Zing. Uh, we have a lot of fun. I know what you did last summer. <gasps> but what we are here to talk about is mostly the movie, the 1990... Eight, seven, seven 1997 movie. <laughs> I know what you did last summer. 
I went over and watched I Know What You Did Last Summer, and I still know what you did last summer in a double feature with my friend Rob, Rob Galuzzo. He works at Blumhouse.com. knocked them both out in one knocked night. Knocked them both out in one night, and I'd seen them both. And he posted a thing on the uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. We posted Facebook a little page. video on the page about 90s horror movies. and But watching them both in a row and seeing how inferior the second one is, in my opinion, to the first Especially one. Especially right after the first one. Yes. And I've seen I Still Know a couple of times, probably maybe three or four total. And I, I might watch it again in mixed company just for fun. But, you know, I don't need to watch it again. Love the first one. And read the book this time, which gave me, like, a lot of things to talk about. You can read along with me as I tell you the story. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. I need to tell you that before we decided to do this episode, I had seen I Know What You Did Last Summer, like, 20 times, probably. Yeah, it's a favorite. I don't know how, but I never knew there was a book. I never investigated. Never. And it was a real treat finding that out. Why don't you read a book? You watch too much damn TV. So can I talk to you, Marshall, about the plot of the book and how it's different from the movie? Because I think we're all pretty familiar, if you're listening to this, probably, with the movie. Have you mentioned the author? Lois Duncan. Okay, Lois Duncan brought us this book in 1973, and it uses the era in which it's set. Okay, so, Marshall, what version of this book did you read? Did you read the original 1973 version, or did you read the 2010 update as I did? I'm going to say that it was the 73 just because would the update still include Vietnam? No. Okay, totally the 73. So... I have really fun things to tell you about the update. So in 2010, the publisher came back to Lois Duncan and said, hey, we'd like to release a nice little package of your books, brand new spiffy cover, which you can see that I brought in, Mm -hmm. and we're going to have you update these novels for a young adult audience today in 2010. And so she did, to hilarious result, in my opinion. Because because it's updated from the point of view of a woman in her, what, 70s? Well, I mean, it's not like other people didn't look over it before they published it either. And you could very clearly see where they shoehorned in. Like, one of the characters just mentions using a GPS in his car. It's mentioned that people have cell phones, but no one ever uses theirs, and people are constantly directing each other to go to the... There's where my telephone is. It's in the hall, and the directory is pinned up on the wall next to it. And they interchange... They say Iraq instead of Vietnam. I didn't see it. It came out of nowhere. Oh my god, we hit a boat! Where's the fort? Hello. If you've seen I Know What You Did Last Summer, or even a trailer for the 1997 film, you know that it's about a group of kids who... Four friends. Four friends who hit a guy with their car, a pedestrian, on a winding road, and they dump his body instead of calling the police and telling them what happened because they don't want to get in trouble and jeopardize their futures. I hereby sentence you to a term of no less than four years in a federal pound-me-in-the-ass prison. In the novel, much more depressingly, it's a group of four friends who are out drinking a little, smoking a little pot, you learn. Yeah. And rather than the Freddie Prince Jr. sober character from the movie, it's it's Barry who's yeah, driving, the names right? Are all still the same. Yes. So it's the Ryan Phillippe character driving in the book. And he's had a drink or two and a little he's pot. He's had some beer and smoked some pot. And they hit a ten year old boy on a bicycle. Who the book points out, and my mother would have pointed out if she'd seen him on the road because my mother always pointed out with every bicyclist that we passed 
whether or not they had reflectors and light clothing. So what's different about the book from the movie is um, it's a meditation on conscience and morality and what's the right thing to do. They do call the police. They do. Ten minutes later. Yeah. But they don't stop and get out and check on them. They just yeah. keep going. And then they pass the first phone because like Barry's like, what? The phone is right next to the counter and people are going to hear. Yeah. So they keep going until it's like this anonymous payphone. So there's just there are decisions made that kind of seem like they ultimately lead to the kid not getting help in time. And who knows? Maybe they struck him and killed him right away. Is there a conversation about don't call with your cell phone because they'll know who you are? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I was wondering how it is that she could write it like everyone's got a cell phone and no one's calling the police. Yeah. That argument is made. And that's one of the only times the cell phone's really mentioned. Now, in the spirit of Mother Teresa... What will be your contribution to your community and the world at large? Well, Bob, at summer's end, I plan to move to New York City, where I'll pursue a career as a serious actress. It's my goal to entertain the world through artistic expression. Through art, I shall serve my country. So in the movie, the Sarah Michelle Gellar character talks about in her Croker Queen competition what? pageant at the beginning that she wants to go to New York City. To well, become a, an act, a famous actress. That's where we pick up our characters. We see a young man sitting glumly by the sea, and then we just oh yeah, go in, in his big fat overalls and his floppy '90s hair. Yeah, the actor he was Johnny Doe in Boogie Nights. Oh my god! He was like the up and comer that Dirk Diggler was sort of. I just rewatched by. Boogie Nights. You are absolutely right. Weird. Yeah, that's really weird. So, we cut away from him, and we cut to a... He's uh, sitting on cliffs, by the way, which are clearly not the East Coast. It's not the North Carolina coast. Totally fooled me. I don't know the North Carolina coast. It'll like. look like that, Marshall. All right. Somebody it's here... It's not cliffy and rocky. It's no. flat and sandy. One of the two people at the microphone is from North Carolina. Who? Not me. It is you. Oh, okay. And the writer of the screenplay for I Know What You Did Last Summer, Kevin Williamson... Bless him. Fresh off of Scream... Set it in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And if you read the, the original Scream screenplay, it was set in North Carolina. No. There's like one quick mention to having had a hurricane party, which I believe to them is like everyone getting together during a hurricane. Sure. Since you can't go out on the roads. Mm -hmm. We might as well party. Bend down the hatches. Yeah. Cute. I did not know that. That Scream. Yes. Wow. As he is a North Carolina native, it's sort of right what you know. So when he got this book to adapt, the first thing this guy did was set it in North Carolina. And do you know what his father did for a living, according to Wikipedia? No. Fisherman. Stop. North Carolina fisherman. Holy cow. Yep. That's really fun. So we go to this town that's very nautical themed. It's a real town. Southport? Mm-hmm. North Carolina. If you'll remember, you saw Dead of July, Matthew Scott Montgomery's play that I was in. Yeah. The reading is set in Southport, North Carolina. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you were to walk around the town, just how nautical everything is. But, like, even... Remember when he takes a shower in the gym? And even the gym sort of looks like you're in a boat. <laughs> I guess it does. There's sort of, like, boat fish imagery wherever you look. <laughs> and even more so on the 4th of July Croker Festival. Oh, yeah. Which, what a great fish name for a slasher movie. Oh, I, Broke. let me tell you, as many times as I've seen this movie, that did not occur to me until I was reading Roger Ebert's review of this film today. 
Did not where like he it. made a slight no, but he also made a sly joke about how appropriately named she is as the Croker Queen and how that was kind of a bit of foreshadowing. And I was like, holy mother of God. I People are going around in Croker hats. The Fourth of July parade is mostly made of like big fish floats. Yeah. And there was there's an insult when Johnny Galecki as Max. Oh God, I love him. The um suspect quickly turned victim. Gets called like chum brain. Yeah. So like even there, it's almost like sci-fi. Like, hey, laser brain. <laughs> well, that's what they have in space. What do Nerf they have herder. A, yeah. <laughs> what, what do they have in a coastal fishing village? Chum. Yeah. Go screw it's chum just, brain. It's just in the ether, right? Yeah. Every, everything goes back to fish, which is why I forgive the fact that the beauty pageant, it seems to entirely be done in swimsuits. The talent portion is in swimsuits. (laughs) The interview portion is in swimsuits. The crowning is all in swimsuits. (laughs) She gets her crown. And even even the next even the next year when she's going to give up her crown, the woman singing "Take a Look at Me," she's wearing a bathing suit. It seems that only after you win the contest are you allowed to then wear clothes (laughs) suitable for dry land. Thought about when, when she comes back one year later as like the reigning queen, yeah, to then like hand over the crown, she wears a lovely gown. She wears a lovely it's gown, it's like seafoam green. There's a lot of aqua, yeah, in this movie as a whole. And there's no reds until someone it, it's like Jaws. Jaws tried to suppress the color red, and then when you see blood, it's like blood because you haven't looked at like red, red for mm-hmm. like the last hour, right? And then it, it pops, so yeah, everything's kind of blues and greens and everywhere you go has like crab traps just kind of stacked up yeah and everything's a little sort of like rusty not because everything's old but rusty because you're by the sea yeah it's sort of the sea, sea the rust. salty air that does it and who plays the big party the band southern culture on the skids yes my dad is a big fan of that band They were playing the North Carolina party because they're a North Carolina band. And this is North Carolina. And we're introduced to our four main characters. Helen, who won the Croker Queen pageant. That's Sarah Michelle Gellar. She's beautiful. Who had started Buffy, but Buffy hadn't gone on the air yet. Or hadn't Mm. gotten Buffy just yet. Like, she was pre-Buffy when they hired her. Cool. Because I thought it was just stunt casting. Mm -hmm. But it was just like... Just an SMG explosion. It was her time. Yeah. Yeah, and Barry, played by Ryan Phillippe. If you can't really remember where Cruel Intentions was in all of this, mm-hmm. it wasn't yet. Right. So he was more of a fresh face. Right. So was Freddie Prince Jr. Yes, who played Ray. Yep. And Jennifer Love Hewitt, who plays Julie. And a lot of the scenes that we've done so far, I've been literally truthfully terrified. Like, a lot of the terrifying scenes are not acting at all. I'm really scared of this stuff because I see it for the first time when we roll. They were such interesting characters, and for me, Helen was such a, it was a change, it was a real departure, and it was something I really wanted to do. Um, I also, I love horror, I love being scared, I love thrillers, and I think it's so rare that things actually scare you. Instead of a beauty contest in the book, Helen, actually it is like a beauty contest. Sure. But the prize is to become the golden girl. The Channel 5 future star. Do you know how hard it is to Google like TV network Golden Girl and not just get the Golden Girls. But it was like, never Golden Girl. It's Future Star. Is it Golden Girl in your book? Yeah, it's Golden Girl. No, they changed it to Future Star. 
Probably because no one knows what the heck a golden girl is. But I think in the 70s, it was a thing. Well, I guess we need to compare notes on this because in my 2010 update of the book, she's the Channel 5 future star. She won the contest by sending her picture in. Yeah, yeah. And what she she gets to do is occasionally fill in and give the weather report. She does a webcast. Okay, no. What she does is the, which I don't think they even had in the 70s. It's more of like a 50s thing, which is she has a DJing show. Where she just plays like records. So her webcast in the 2010 update is a DJ thing, but they were just like, and she does it on the web, which makes no sense. Okay, weird. I, I, I think it was, yeah, because the Channel Five Golden Girl. I don't think that's a thing anymore. That's incredible. But I think it was basically like getting a mascot for a year. Yeah. And Which makes me wonder why she, and I don't know about your version, but in my version, she like gets an apartment at the nicest apartment complex oh, in town. Well. Right, but for just a year, because presumably well, there's going to be a new Golden Girl. Presumably, but they never star. do it on that. They're never like, just a year. She's like, no. I'm the Golden Girl. Right, but it occurred to me later in the book, I was like, wait a minute. Never really She's not going to say, it's probably not smart, but I just assume that they Helen, do it every year. Maybe save not. your money. Yeah, what are you doing, Helen? You, don't, don't you learn anything from your mom? Did, did yours drop out? She did drop out. Yeah. Oh god. Dropped out of high school to go become the golden girl. Yeah. So. So in the in the movie, it's the Croker Queen pageant, which I think is an appropriate appropriation of that kind of thing. Yeah, in the movie they're all the same age and they all have plans on busting out of town. Yeah, Helen's got big plans. She tells us all her plans by the bonfire after the big party about how Barry's going to be a football star and go to rehab and then impregnate her with the first of three children, and it's a whole thing. That is She knows exactly how her life is going to go, which really is important. Kevin Williamson, cynical teen, little smarter than they should be, definitely pop culture savvy dialogue. Yeah. Also in that scene, this is when they're like by the ocean necking. And yeah, they are. They pull a device, which feels more trite than it is, but you have to realize this came out before Urban Legends. Yeah. The movie Urban Legends. Uh, Urban Legend, which was also produced by the same guy, by the way. Makes sense, makes mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. Similar in tone, where they get into a discussion of like, hey, you ever hear that story about the guy with a hand for a hook? and Hook for a hand. Hook for a hand. Uh-huh. And you hear the scratching, and like between the four of them, they manage to tell like every variation of the story. It's a really fun scene. And they're like, well, it's just an urban legend, like in that movie. But the movie doesn't come out for another two years. Right. So, but that's kind of hard to forget when you're watching it. It is. It is. It just, it really makes it feel a lot more of its time. I suppose for normal humans, it does for me because I've seen the movie so many times and I feel like it's not a movie anymore. They're just people that I know. It doesn't stand out for me too much Okay, that's a really good way to smooth over weaknesses. (laughs) Yeah, it, it feels great. For most of us, I'd say that a lot of us saw it when it was fairly new. And then haven't seen it for quite a while. Yeah, no, that's not my that's not my story. No, you. I watch it at multiple times a year. All during the summer. Most of the time, yeah. I just glut myself with it over the summer. Always watch it on July Fourth with um, Matthew and Daniel, and uh, usually while drinking some kind of a red, white, and blue, some kind of concoction. Taking breaks to watch fireworks out the window, jumping in the pool. It's it's a real. I could I will start crying, uh, with how much I love it. So let's just move on. Okay, moving <clears throat> I, on. I've seen it a lot. Okay. I'm just so tired of this trend of attack of the insert your vengeful psycho here movie. I mean, they're so unbelievable, you know? What are the chances of a chemically imbalanced camp director luring preteens to a bloodbath at the archery range? Well, apparently they're pretty good at Northern Maine's camp bloodsucker. Really, it feels more like a Kevin Williamson movie than even Scream, even though it's based on a previous property. Because when Scream came out, it was a real game changer. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but it was also Wes Craven at the helm. So how much of it was him and how much of it was this rising star, Kevin Williamson, you couldn't really say. Sure. Until he made a second film. And then you could sort of learn just how many fingers are in the Kevin Williamson touch. Yeah. So you get to know that, and I know what you did last summer, in various ways. Big one is the dialogue. Yes. The Which teenagers. I saw him quoted as saying, like, he just writes, like, old Southern ladies gossiping. He's like, if you just... And I guess he's more referring to Dawson's Creek. Okay. But he says, like, his writing is, even for teenagers, is always, like, Southern people talking about each other, but just transposed onto <laughs> teenagers. This is kind of fun. I'll listen for that. The nicest thing I can say about her is all of her tattoos are spelled correctly. Starting with hitting not a child, but an adult. Yeah. That also brings the mystery. Because, like in Scream, you know there's a killer. You know how the killer is killing, but you don't know who the killer is or why. Yeah. The killer is killing. And it's a decent mystery Mm -hmm. with suspects. And red herrings. Mm -hmm. And people get eliminated. You know, people tend to be suspects right until they themselves get killed. Sure. I think the book does that really effectively. It did for me anyway. And in the book, people don't actually get killed. So you don't, you can't, like, you don't eliminate, like, the Max character in the movie gets eliminated. You, You believe it could be him for a while and then he gets killed. But in the book... You got, like, multiple people kind of, like, who at any given time could be the killer. Including... Elsa? Well, okay, there's the sister, yeah, which is uh, Helen's sister. Helen's sister. Who in the book is Dowdy, and and Williamson's script was likewise Dowdy, but then the director said, "Uh, let's make her pretty. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Elsa is not the killer in either version. She's not. But which do you think would bring someone closer to murder? The one who's just leagues away from her prettier sister? Mm. Or the one who's so close, it could have, should have been her, but she got usurped by her younger sister because right. she's played by Bridget Wilson in the movie Bridget of um of Billy Madison. Yes. That Veronica Vaughn is one piece of ace. She's a suspect. Ray is a suspect in the movie because he doesn't seem to be getting any letters. He's like, I got a letter, but you, you never see it. Right. And somehow the fact that he never knew his father but did know that he was a fisherman just like. Ooh, what's going on with you? Mm-hmm. Like, that makes him a suspect. Mm-hmm. It sounds like weak tea, but it works in the moment. Yeah. Barry's just always angry. But he's a butthead in the movie and in the book. He really is, and more so than I remember. I guess I'm just remembering him also from other films, and other films have bled. Here, here's how bad it is. I was reading the book, and it describes that Ray is not very athletic, and he had a really athletic dad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, he's good at soccer. And then I was like, wait, no, that was the movie. No, that was She's All That. <laughs> uh-huh. But he was good at soccer. That, uh, yeah, that hacky sack scene. Yeah. I Ugh. guess Ray really isn't very good at, at sports. <laughs> right. That is your brain being full of a lot of information, Marshall. It really is. You shoved is. a lot in there. <laughs> but the best part is the elimination of the person they hit as suspect. Mm-hmm. And then... It's the person they hit. Right. But we're talking about the movie. About and the in movie, the book, yeah. it, at no point is, I mean, they know they that they've killed the little boy. Living or undead he's, little boy. He's dead. Well, at one point, if you're going way back to your young 1997 brain, there was probably. There was probably a point where it could have been a ghost. I'm not sure if that ever occurred to me. Well, actually, it probably did. You're right. I think you're right. At some point, especially when... Most definitely. When you think like, well, who else could it be but the very person that they hit? Yeah. Ergo, 
ghost. Right. Because at that point, especially like once they've killed Max off, it's like, well, he's the only person who legitimately could have seen them, yeah. you think. Yeah. But Williamson never really went. Well, I mean, he has since gone on for like the vampire diaries, so he's in paranormal now. But at the time, while you're learning that, that Williamson touch, it's really more slasher than yeah. anything. There's no like ghosts. Yeah. Or zombies to blame. Zoinks! A seagoing ghost! <laughs> the other potential suspects in the book are possibly the parents of the little boy. They've started to get letters and, and things like that, and they go visit where the kid lived. And the sister of the little boy is there. Yeah. And you find out that the mom is in a mental institution. The dad is down there taking care of her. And at one point I thought, could it be that dad? There's a quick mention of a brother. Yes, there is. And, and then later when they're like going down the suspects, it, he's left out. Yeah. She just kind of forgets that a brother was mentioned. And I'll tell you, I'm not a person who, when I'm watching a movie or reading a book, is very good at guessing what's going to happen, nor do I try very hard. It doesn't often occur to me well before a big reveal who it was or what the situation was. I don't try to think several steps ahead and I don't do it well. Other people go, oh yeah, I knew that about 30 minutes before the movie was over. And I'm never that person, okay? But having had so much experience with seeing I Know What You Did Last Summer over and over again and all the red herring stuff yeah. and then seeing this re very recently watching the second one while I was reading the novel once this one character that we haven't mentioned yet comes up the neighbor of Helen his name's Kali oh yeah when he shows up and he's, and he's like I was out in nature for like out in the mountains or out in nature or yeah he just sort of describes that he was a little removed from society yeah for a bit right turns out Vietnam. Vietnam. Or in the reboot book that I read, Iraq. Yeah. But what I didn't see coming in the book. So Helen lives in this apartment complex. and a, a, Oh, this is 70s. It's one of those singles apartment complexes. Oh, yeah. That if it exists today, I never found it when I was looking for an apartment. No. Because in the 70s, they were just like, hey, come to this singles apartment complex. <laughs> Marshall's kind hey. of doing, like, a da little yeah. dance move right now. Well, it, 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 it's like, hey, uh, you want to come back to my apartment complex? Check out the hot tub. There's a lot of really cool people. Yeah. Really good vibe. I think you'd dig it. And even in the 2010 version that I read, That's how Helen, I describes, Beagle Beagle. Helen describes, there are a lot of school teachers who live in her, that have, like, multiple roommates and, you know, being single. And I was like, right. this feels very 70s, but whatever. So Helen meets this guy whose nickname is Collie, and he's very nice to her, and he's he kind of, like, appreciates her attention, and is kind of a nice, helpful new friend, and they talk by the pool, whatever. Separate to that, Julie, who broke up with Ray after that horrible incident last summer, and Ray went off to go, like, fishing on a boat in... Oh, really? Yeah. Well, in he California. Yeah, in California. Yeah, a little fishing. He, he did odd jobs, but in, at the odd time, jobs. California was just like, hey, man, that's where it's at. Yeah, totally. You know? He went off to California. He went out to hate ashbury But so while... tune in and while, drop out. Yeah, while Ray was out having a groovy time in California, <laughs> in the book, Julie began, over the course of the last little bit, dating this guy named Bud, who is kind of milk toast. She's not really that into him, but her mom, in 2010, I'm doing air quotes right now, yeah. her mother is concerned that she's not dating. So she's like, it's Friday night. I guess I should accept a date from this guy, Bud. And I'm like, this is so 70s. No mother in 2010. It's not even 70s. Would... It's, it's someone who grew up in the 50s, Absolutely. writing in the 70s, Absolutely. updating it from 2010. But you have Julie 
half-heartedly dating this bud guy, and you've got Kali, who is hanging around Helen's apartment. Okay. And what I didn't see coming well, is that they're the same person. I didn't see it coming either, because it's more fun to have more suspects, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And in the version I read, it was Bud that they knew he had been off to war. Kali had just been off. And then Kali, does he say that he got kind of a... He kind of yes. cracked up in the yes, war? Yes, he did. He said he went a little crazy. Yeah. Now, tiny, tiny detail that has nothing to do with anything other than I think it's funny is that they go to a Starbucks. This is, again, this book masquerading as a hip 2010 book when really it's just barely... There are just a couple cell phones thrown in and call it 2010. Yeah. That Bud runs into Ray on the street. Ray has just visited Barry in the hospital. Does he get food in the Starbucks? And they go... Well, he says, I'm going to head over to the Starbucks and get a coffee cake or something. That's what Bud says. <laughs> and he's like, you want to join me? And Ray's like... Maybe I'll sit down and see what he's got that I don't got or whatever. Yeah. So Ray orders a coffee. Bud orders a croissant. They sit. And then Ray gets up to leave and leaves a tip. Oh, okay. After getting coffee for sitting for 10 minutes and then before leaving. And I was like, this wasn't obviously, it wasn't a Starbucks before. But I'm not even sure it was a coffee shop before. It was, it was a lunch counter. But so if you're really updating like, it. Like in, a roast beef sandwich or something. If you're really updating it in 2010, he's not going to get up and leave a tip. Just cut that out. If you leave a tip at a Starbucks, you're going to leave a tip when you buy your drink and put in a little tip jar. Yeah. That's all. I just, I was no, looking at it going, it, this is just, it's. No, this is all fascinating it's to me. The, all the big things, like the cell phones and GPS, matter not. When people are <laughs> talking about drug freaks and crazy college kids freaking out on drugs. Because it's not that people don't do drugs in 2010. It's that that language of like, oh, he's probably some speed freak, some drug freak. It's so post-60s. It's not even that I post even... I mean, it was published in 73. Yeah. So it's probably written still, you know, well, okay, in the very early 70s. And from a perspective of someone who was already an adult at the time. So her teenage perspective was already a little older. <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? What? So they've dumped the body. There's they've, they've, amazing jump scares where yeah, he, he, he wasn't crown, dead. So he's still alive. But not for long, because they push him in the water, and then Barry's got to go back for the crown. And all it does is open its eyes underwater. Oh, my God. So scary still. Every single time it scares me. So scary. So cool. But and like, his face is all bloody, yes. so you can't really tell who it is. No. So when they read one year later that it was this guy... Dave. David Egan. David Egan. They're like, oh, well, the body we pushed in the water, the body that came ashore, the fisherman was David Egan. Right. There can't be multiple who... bodies floating around. In their minds, they're like, one person died that around that time of year, so if a body washed up, it had to be yeah. him. They saw the tattoo, said Susie. Yeah. Turns out he had a fiancé named Susie that died a year before. So it was definitely David Egan. And totally by the way, David Julie's Egan. the one who did all this research. She's the yeah. brooding one who's On, having a hard time. Speaking of you know, time-specific... She has to sort of quickly explain the internet to Helen and <laughs> oh, all of the 1997 audience. That computer. And when she kind of puts all the pieces together, when, when she's out visiting Anne Heche, who's really good as the sister who's kind of a suspect or just kind of there for information. I think she's kind of off the rails, but I love it. But I think it's kind of ridiculous. She's like, ah, I got to get to the internet. I know it's totally reasonable for the time, but for now it feels kind of funny that she's got to quick get in her car and drive real fast. So she can get to her home where she has access to the internet. Yeah. So she can go and, like, check on an old news article. I love explanations of the internet. I love it. There's a Buffy episode called I, Robot, You, Jane. Shout out to Matthew's Twitter handle. 
where Willow is explaining electronic mail. Right. I mean, it's so charming. What, what is internet anyway? What do you write to it like mail? There's Allison. Can you explain what internet is? So just to reveal who the killer is in the movie, it turns out it's the father of the girl who died. That's why he had the tattoo that said Susie. Yeah. Who one year later murdered David Egan. That's why the body washed ashore. He was just taking some kind of a nighttime murder victory walk. Yeah. And that's when he got hit by the partying teenagers. Can I just say that I had a, for years, had a hard time remembering and explaining this plot. Because it's confusing. Here's what does it for me. The whole Billy Blue thing about Anne Hayes' character saying some guy came and then the boat thing and then the tattoo that says Susie. And what helps me is to go back and explain it just chronologically, which is to say that... Two July 4ths ago, David Egan is driving, I believe he's driving his girlfriend or fiance Susie in a car. There's an accident. He's responsible. I don't know if he was drinking and driving. Do they say that? Yeah. Yeah. So she dies. He doesn't. David Egan doesn't die. Then a year ago, so fast forward a year from the two years ago accident. Okay. David's sitting on the cliffs of North Carolina Beach. Having received a letter that says, I'll never forget last summer. Yeah. Or what happened last no, summer. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he's he's sad. He's looking at, what is it? It's is like it, a bracelet or a yeah, like, like a necklace memento from her. He's very sad. Yeah. And then that same night, Susie's father, having waited and waited a whole year. Having sent at least one threatening letter. Yeah. Decides he's going to take revenge on David. So he does. And then he's, as you said, on his little murder victory walk, I guess, on the road in his slicker after yeah. having murdered, after having taken his revenge. He's probably in a really good mood, dude, we should dude. say. Well, you know happy to have finally killed the I'm guy who say, killed his daughter. No. Because I, I don't think the murder felt as good as he thought it did. Ooh. I don't think he found the peace that he thought he'd find. Yeah. And so. I like where you're going with this. Some sort of surrogate assailants come in. teens reeking of alcohol. Reeking of alcohol and some pot. And some pot. If if you follow the book. Yeah, sure. Hey, you want to get high, man? That's how they do. They got wooden balls, man. So I believe he did not find the satisfaction he thought he would in killing David Egan. Well, because it's like, well, why go on the murdering rampage a second time? Right. Is he that mad about getting hit by a car? No. No. He's that mad about Susie, but the murder... And you know what? I don't think he'll ever be happy. No. This is not the answer. No. Ben Willis. That's why I don't believe in the death penalty. Things just got real. Okay. It's not going to give anyone closure. Two wrongs don't make a right. It's not our job to decide who lives or dies. Continue. All right. So... Ben Willis believes in... You know what? He might have been there just going like, you know what? I still feel kind of hollow. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Smack! Bam! Gets hit by a car. <laughs> and now his life is given purpose again. As he, I assume, overhears them talking and gets their names. Yeah, I guess. He's playing dead or something. Because Julie's the first one to get a letter. So, unlike the book, the book, this isn't as thought out as the movie. The movie's like a chess game of, oh, of revenge. God. yeah. Whereas the book is more him figuring out just who is guilty. Because we're talking about Bud slash Collie. Bud slash Collie. And he explains who's the how he figured person. in the book. He explains how he figured because it out. Because one of them sent Julie. yellow roses, mm-hmm. and he starts at Julie, sends the note as a way to flush out all the others. Yeah. Because he watches her and sees who she goes to first. He goes. I knew that if I sent her a note that said, "I know what you did last summer." If Why is she it did, necessary, he date her then. 
okay, look, you've given us an insight into Ben Willis's mind. Mm, gonna I'm going to give you some Bud insight into Bud slash Collie's mind. Yeah. I'm thinking now when it started to dawn on me in the book that Collie and Bud were the same person, I had the same thought. I was like, oh, he's been dating her for a while. You know, my thought is if you are plotting plotting Plotting. slowly to mete out your revenge i think it might give you some or you might think it might give you some kind of satisfaction to be really close to a person and observe them and watch them suffer because like the big moment at the last while he takes out for fries and burgers yeah i think so i think watching someone kind of deteriorate especially after you've started sending them notes Mm. saying that you knew anyway but he sends her a note and he says if it wasn't her then it won't mean anything to her. But if it was, he she'll freak out. out. From the flower shop that a red-headed cheerleader. Yeah, Julie's red-headed in the book. And a cheerleader. Yeah. And well, so not anymore, goes, but she was before the whole event last Yeah, summer. he goes looking. He couldn't find one. Then he, then he starts looking back a year. Yep. And finds one. Note that I wrote down uh, when you're in Helen's room, what's some of the set decoration? Yellow roses. Oh, okay. Because in the movie? or In the movie. Okay. Yeah. I didn't notice that. So Yellow Rose is, and that was like, oh, that's the unkindest cut because he sees it as like gloating or making a joke of the death. Of course, he is all cracked up after Nam. Yeah. So why not? Yeah. But no, Ben Willis, the uh, vengeful fisherman who can take a licking and keep on ticking. He then spends a year plotting. Not easy, I'd say, because all of them left town to like sort of zero in on just who to take vengeance on. Uh, Helen leaves town to go to New York, but comes back. Julie and Barry are at the same college, but she mentioned she really doesn't see him. It's a big yeah. campus. Weird detail, by the way. Yeah. World full of colleges. They go to the same one and never see each other. I don't think it's that weird. I think because... Uh, Statistically, no, but yeah. for the sake of the movie... Right. They get sent away, but to the same place, but with no contact. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ray, what happened to Ray? He was supposed to go to New York and be an intellectual, but instead he becomes a fisherman. He, he stays in town. Yeah. Thereby just increasing his level of being a suspect. Right. So Julie, in the book, it, she actually becomes a better student after the incident. She buckles down. Buckles she loses down. interest in all the things that made her vivacious, like cheerleading, and just starts concentrating more on her books and studying. And by the way, her mom... Starts dating much less. Yes. Her mom is pretty much always either baking something, cooking something, or cutting out a dress pattern, which is hilarious because it's 2010 and not a lot of people make dresses anymore. Whatever. But... I feel like this is a good place just for me to rant for just a moment about the gender roles in the book that are so evident to me to be very 70s. And she tried to update them. You keep saying 70s, and I know it was published in 73. Yeah. But it was also written by someone whose own teenage years was in the 50s. I understand that. But I still think she had a grasp of how she had children. True. Importantly, which we'll get to. Um, Lois Duncan, born 1934. Okay. So her high school years capped out probably around 52. Wow. Just to give you an idea of where she's coming from. Wow. The question, how do I look, depends on good grooming habits. Health, posture, cleanliness, and neatness, plus a daily routine of little finishing touches. I'm not sure how important this is to anything, but it stuck out a lot to me as a woman living today that there's a lot of stuff about the way women look and putting themselves together and how, like, there's one point where 
Barry's been shot. He's shot in the book, not run over by a car. And Helen's crying, and Collie comes to pick her up, and he's like, you'd better pull yourself together. You can't go outside looking like that. I'm like, why not? She can't go outside having cried? And then after she sleeps on it that night, she goes home and sleeps a little, and then he comes to Helen's door, knocks on the door, and she stri- she brushes her hair out and puts on some lipstick. She is very vain. She is. But then when she answers the door, he says, wow, you don't look so bad. Quote, I thought you'd be all haggard and baggy-eyed, but you don't look so bad, which is just re- offensive. I'll say it to me. Um, the guy who's a murderer offended you? Yeah, I can look. I can understand that a guy who's come back from the war and is a little bit kinked up from that and finds out his brother was killed in a hit and run and nobody has been held accountable. I can understand someone going into a murderous rage. Um, Don't call a woman haggard and we'll get along just fine. All right. And now for at least eight hours of sleep. And that means a clear complexion, shining eyes, glossy hair. In short, that means a better appearance. So we... Uh, We're kind of bouncing around here. We are. But we have said that the... Well, what did the one year do to them? That's what I'd like to cover. Okay. So Julie, I think I, I read in your friend's post that she got kind of goth over the year, which I don't believe. She just became no, kind of I, sullen. I would never have described her as goth. And... She sullen. Her hair's stringy and kind of dirty. So she's not taking care of herself. She's wearing almost no makeup. Yeah. Conversely, Helen is wearing too much makeup. She looks like an old woman in one shot where she's got like way too much product in her hair, uh-huh. way too much makeup. She works at a perfume counter, so maybe that's some of it. Yeah. But she's also smoking. And of course, people smoke. Sarah Michelle Geller's terribly unnatural smoking. She just looks like an old woman just like smoking. You sound it, like Lois Duncan describing haggard, baggy-eyed ladies. It looks Marshall like she Hicks. pulled that cigarette out of one of those long cigarette purses I used to see old women <laughs> old women use like in the early 80s. Like it made it classy. You mean her 90s arm cuff didn't totally make her youthful to you? Nope. It looked like she'd gone the other way. She was covering up. I think that's a good example of... Whereas Julie had broken down. Right. And as it goes on, as they're dealing with their feelings by dealing with the mystery, she becomes a little more natural looking. The other one gets a little more color in her cheeks. And they both look a little more uh, healthy. Sure. I'll give you um, that. Just in time to be killed. They still have ridiculous outfits on, though. Oh, and then Barry's just been spending an asshole. Yeah. So, yeah, so and in the book, Barry is at the local university, and he's joined a fraternity, whereas Ray has grown a beard and has blonde hair and long hair. Like, I imagine him as kind of looking like a hippie, like a hippie Jesus, because yeah. his hair is, like, down to his shoulders, and he's got a beard, and he's been off doing odd jobs in California, man. I'll make you a book. He's been dropping that acid we've been hearing about. In the movie, he looks nothing like a person who has been working on a boat his hair is like perfectly gelled and he's wearing like a tight black tank top and i feel like the other fishermen would be making fun of him not joking and carousing with him but that's just my opinion he's just too much of a pretty boy i don't believe it he's like he's like clean with clean glistening biceps can't can't hide those hollywood looks no it's Um, very silly but yeah they're all on edge they're all they've all got strained relationships and haven't really spoken to each other and then they all are forced back together because julie gets a note who sent this uh there's no postmark or return address your guess is as good as mine why what does it say nothing 
So our killer is determined to not only get revenge on these characters, but really watch them, watch them might I say, wriggle on the end of a hook. Boom. Yeah. Because he could have done it at any time. Yeah. Time and again. At one point, he manages to cut Helen's hair while she sleeps because... She's and put her beautiful crown, place it gently on top of her yeah. and he's like, recently butchered hair. Like, how much do you think he was cutting? And then she, like... Moved a little. Moved a little, and he just froze. Yeah. He's like, ah. That's the scene I want to see. And then, then she goes back to sleep. He's like, okay, good. Yeah. Back, back <laughs> at it. That's dedication. Yeah. Yeah. In the book... Nothing so dramatic happens to Helen's hair. She just looks baggy-eyed and haggard. I'll never get over it. But in the book, Helen gets a picture, not the little boy, but a picture of a little boy on a bike cut out from a magazine on her door. Julie has gotten the note. She's the only one where it specifically says, I know what you did last summer. Uh Uh-huh. And Barry is lured out to near the university football field where there are fireworks and a Memorial Day celebration and anti-Memorial Day protests going on. And in the the book, right, for those who have seen the movie, this kind of same scene where Barry is working out at the gym and he's by himself and gets hit by, the guy steals his car and then hits him with his car. But in the book, he's shot in the stomach. Spends the rest of the book in the hospital. And likewise, he's in the hospital after his car mashup in the movie. And Ray says he got... What does he say? He got a letter as well? Because there's a whole... He says he got one. He, just he never says he it. got one. And Barry's like, that's balanced. You know, Julie mm. gets a body in a trunk, which is, makes absolutely mm. no sense, by the way. When Julie is driving in her car in the movie, and she hears something coming from her trunk, pulls over, opens the trunk, Max's dead body is in there being eaten Johnny by Galecki. crabs. Johnny yeah. Galecki. Julie sees this body that you're totally believing is plausible that has been placed there, but then she goes back for it, and miraculously, it's gone. It and all the crabs. How? Well, I don't know how much time passed. It's, uh, to me, you it just, looks like no time just passed. back the van up to it. Well, I don't know. I, I thought, yeah, I don't know, 15 minutes. No, she freaked out. She ran straight inside and said, come back outside, and look at the... No body. No crabs. Then they switched cars. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Uh, We're going to show you a picture of a former co-star, and then you just say whatever comes into your mind first up. Uh, Next one, Jennifer Love Hewitt. My goodness, I I know what your boobs did last summer. (laughs) Because whenever you see that movie, it's just a lot of cleavage. (laughs) Do you know what she's talking about? Yes. So we're now in the Williamson era of horror movies, where you can get bigger names, at least out of television, to star in your films. And what's going down is nudity. Mm. And in this movie, gore. Yeah. Not much gore. No. Like Scream before it, we've cut out the TNA, but we've left the cleavage. Well lit and well made up cleavage. Mm-hmm. And like you said, not a lot of gore, but the kills are kind of brutal. It's kind of like that Texas Chainsaw Massacre effect of like, I always think this movie's gorier than it is, but it's just effectively violent, I think. Yeah. Is the important thing to mention. You know, something that uh, Williamson is good at writing is someone being killed and another person unable to stop it. In Scream, you know, like they're watching on the monitor and it's like, get out of there, kid! Behind you! Yeah. In this one, you get two of those in Secession, which is uh, Helen's on stage and she can see 
Barry up in like the unused balcony. And that poor murdered. Croker Queen contestant is never going to finish her rendition of Fame. No. Because Helen starts screaming. <laughs> and and then Helen's taken home and she's in the back of a cop car. This idiot bumbling cop who never listens to a word she says. It drives me absolutely nuts and I get it. This happens in horror movies. But she screams, disrupts the entire pageant. She sees her boyfriend get murdered. Mm-hmm. And she's crying about it and saying, like I saw him Barry. get hurt. And he goes, Barry who? Barry who? Like her, Who's this fictional Barry you're talking well, like, like about? Like if she supplied a last name and an address, then would he have looked around for clues? I mean, it, it makes me crazy. Because at the very least, you've got a girl who is out of her mind terrified. Like... Okay, just because there's no one up here now doesn't mean there wasn't someone up here, you ass. Well, and then the cop gets his, and she's stuck in the back of the cop car, which, as we all know, if you didn't know from Scream 2. Oh, (laughs) God, that scene. Does a variation on the fact that you can't get out of a cop car. She, once again, can't stop the murder. She can just look at it. One thing I found out with the commentary is what I thought was just a Williamsonian set piece, the hand-cranked elevator, Mm -hmm. which just looks perfect for the town. And the reason it does is that was really in the store. As written, there is an attack in the store, and the mannequins are super creepy, and the fisherman hiding is a mannequin with plastic over him, and then he jumps out. Yeah. Is great. You're talking about the scene where Helen is being... Helen goes to her parents' store. To, and her sister lets her in, and then her sister gets killed, and, and then she's sort of in the store alone. And she then goes into this, like, old freight elevator and is, like, operating it with her hands. And it kind of reminds you of the dumbwaiter in H2O. Yeah, totally. And it just feels like a set piece. You can really feel the typewriter clacking away. Yeah. Writing, like, oh, and then she's in this old elevator that no one uses anymore, so... But it looks cool. Looks cool. It was actually at the store that they were filming in. And the script was rewritten to accommodate that elevator. Wow. So the reason, yeah, it totally fits with that kind of rustic town is because it really was in that I rustic love it. town. I really did enjoy that detail. That's great. And that they saw it and were like, yes. Yes, this. Yes, this in the film. Also, importantly, it's a little different, but, but when Helen does ultimately die... That moment, in, every time I watch a movie, I always think she might make it because she's running oh, from she's the killer. So close. She sees the band. She's like 12 feet from the parade that's going on. How long is this parade? Because she was in that parade when it was light out. She was. That parade's still going. Never occurred to me. But she's running, stops to look behind her, turns back around, starts to head out to certain safety, and then the fisherman gets her. And it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And there's a beautiful shot of them from above. That was copied from an Edward Hopper painting. Really? These facts and more available in the commentary. That's Alex's favorite painter. Yeah. Um, he didn't specify which one it was, but I bet if you looked long enough. I'll bet. I need to find it. Thank you for that, Marshall. I knew there was a reason I listened to this podcast. So that's two down, and really that's it. Yeah. For the killings, because then she goes to um, Ray for help at his boat, which he's like... Julie does. Julie does. And earlier he was like, my boat's down there. And if they just walked down and looked at it, like good friends would, like, you've got your own boat? 
Let's look at if it. If they had ever gone to look at it before but this then, moment. They were like, oh, Ray's a fisherman now. They would have seen that his boat is called the Billy Blue. Which we didn't really explain because we kind of skipped over this scene. Yeah. Well, it ties in with the whodunit. I mentioned the scene in the book where Julie and Ray go to visit the home of the young boy that they killed and find his sister there who's kind of rattling around alone in the house and happy to have visitors. And in the movie, the way that works is Julie and Helen go to visit David Egan's well, a house that he used to live in. And they find his sister there, played by Anne Heche, in mm-hmm. like a leather face kind of apron over a dirty <laughs> dress and with like dead animals She's strung in up in the backyard. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But Julie and Helen are trying to ferret out any clues they can. Yeah, like, Didn't your brother have this one friend that he always hung out with who might murder and revenge <laughs> and his dad? Trying to figure out who saying. could be after them. And the sister reveals that there was this guy who came by shortly after and he said his name was Billy Blue. And they're like, okay. Some that's guy a clue. named Billy Blue. And he left quick, and he was a tall guy. Okay, and they're like, all right, that's enough for us. Mm. And so what you're describing, Marshall, is that as Julie realizes that the fisherman is out and trying to murder, she runs to Ray, and he's like, hop on my boat. And she looks at his boat, and it says Billy Blue on the side, and she goes, it's you. You're the killer. She's sure that Ray is the killer. And then, I guess it's just great casting, because... Okay, she's running from Freddie Prince Jr. Freddie Prince Jr. gets knocked to the floor by, like, a large fisherman. Played by Muse Watson. Muse Watson, who is such good casting because he gets revealed, even though we've never seen him before. Yeah. But it's like, it's you. Yeah, it's him. The guy who looks exactly like you'd think this killer would look. Sure, it makes perfect sense. It's not. It doesn't feel yeah. like it comes out you of left see field. immediately, and you're like... This guy's clearly the killer. Just look at him. Yep. Just look at him. Yep. And he's like, I was Susie's father. Of course you were. Come here, child. It's like, all oh, on his face. Yeah. Immediately. And if you didn't and, and see it on his like, face, it's all on his walls, too, inside yeah. his boat. But it's not like, this is our very first time seeing this guy outside of, like, the slicker that hides your face. Even in Saul, when you find out who's behind it all, it's like, oh, it's the guy who was in the bed that we saw for five seconds. We never even got those five seconds. No. Now, upon or upon many rewatches, when you're looking at mm-hmm. the dead guy that they've killed, his face covered oh, yeah, in yeah. blood, you know what to look for, and you're like, oh, cool, it's Muse Watson. But you're right, and that's kind of lovely how that plays out, how yeah. you get all the way to the end. He's basically introduced full package. And I must say, he does a great job. He's very intimidating and scary and holds yeah. his own. And-, and, and he's not a character, he's not like Billy and Stu from Scream, who then flip the switch. Right. I guess for a second he's like, he's not, boat, he's not kind old Mr. Oh, that's Mr. Harris over there on his boat. Yeah. It's nothing like that. There was we no scene where like all four kids were running and someone was like, where are you running to on this hot July day? Right. And then stares off and a little bit too long after him. Yeah. He's, he's got some gardening tools that are a little too sharp. We don't get any of that. Nothing. No kindly Mr. McGregor who runs the amusement park. This guy wasn't even a suspect. He also adapted the false Heather Jasper Howe persona to turn the press against us. And then he framed poor hideous old man Wickles by putting that book in the Black Knight Ghost in his mansion. We get a lot of really fun stuff of Julie running from him. We get some bodies popping up. It's really fun. Yeah, he's, he's got really some effective. bodies in cold storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His plan for them? Go ahead, Marshall. Let us no know. Idea. Nope. Okay. Um, Barry, let's see. Is it the most practical thing? Sure. Probably just take him out far enough where he knows the tides will take them away. Yeah. 
because the alternative is he will then do things with the bodies. Ah, uh, you said it, not me. So probably just their fish bait. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or chum. They're actually going to be chum. He's like, I'm <gasps> going to chop you up and turn you into chum, and I'm going to fish with you for like a week. Ugh. From this moment on, you will now be known as shark bait. In the book, there's kind of a riveting, for me, moment where Bud slash Collie reveals himself to Helen and gives a whole speech about how he tracked them all down. He, he's waiting for her he in her apartment. He plans on killing Helen. Yeah. He plans on killing Julie. And at the very, very end, when Julie's like, well, what did he plan on doing to you? Ray goes, this is like the last page. Well, he tries to kill Julie. He's, he's choking yeah, no, no, her no. out. His, his plan. Yeah. Plan is to kill Helen. Yeah. Plan is he to wants kill... to kill Julie because I know what you're getting at. Because that is the worst thing that could happen to Ray. To Ray. And that's how you know this is a book for hetero young women. Right. Because it ends on the note of that's how much Ray has loved Julie. Is that the worst possible thing that the killer knows that Ray... And you know what? That Maybe that answers your question about why he would date Julie for so long. Because, number one, he knew it was pissing Ray off. And it also allowed him to, like, just learn more about all of the characters, especially about Julie. Okay. And then that's how he learns. Like, maybe he initially planned to kill Ray as well. But ultimately, he's figured out that the worst thing he could do to Ray is to kill his beloved Julie. Aww. But I think what's important to note that's important difference in the movie versus the book is that at the end of the movie... Julie and Ray have defeated the killer in a really elaborate accident on the boat. He gets his arm sliced off. His hand. His hand. I'm sorry. It's still hanging on to the hook. Yes. And then you're watching. You're like, oh, yeah, like that hook, uh, hook story from the beginning. Right. And his body falls into the water and the cops assure Ray and Julie it'll turn up. Yeah. Now, Uh, original ending. One year later, she gets an electronic mail. That says, I still know. Dun, dun, dun. Is that, is that true? That's true. Oh, cool. What we got to see, which was the right thing to do, was a reshoot, which was filmed in a stage next to the Party of Five stage. Okay. So she could just kind of walk over and like get in a towel and go do that. Smart. Which is, she thinks she gets another letter, but no, it's to a pool party. Yeah. Come and, on by the frat house. By the way, she's still covered up a, a crime. Yeah, what I was getting at is that the the cop says, do you have any idea why this guy would want to kill you two? And they look at each other and they just shake their heads. Yeah, well, besides that crime. So the guilt that was making her all sallow the first time, she has now forgiven herself for because he was a bad man. He was a bad man. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, I killed somebody and didn't report to the police. Turns out I didn't kill him. I just tried to. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a bad man. And he was a bad man. So I'm going to go to pool parties now. That's my arc. Yeah. I have rosy cheeks now. I've come uh, And I around. wear beautiful makeup and my hair is all done before I get into the shower. Yeah. And I wrap my towel around my body and give myself ample cleavage in my towel because that's I'm Julie James. When no one's around. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, it's a pool party. Invitations. It's not even a, it's not a letter from a killer. And then she goes back. But written in the steam on the door to the shower is I still know... And then bursting through the glass of that shower door rather than opening it. Yeah. Is the fisherman. What happens to her? Well, there's a sequel. But hold on. Hold the phone. Okay. So what I was getting at, before we reach that fun teaser ending, is that Julie and Ray don't ever tell what happened. True. And people are dead. And it's a whole big mess. 
just one of those mad fishermen. We haven't really addressed this, but in both the book and the movie, they make a pact, mm. the group of four. They make an agreement that they'll never, ever talk about this to anybody. And in the book, there's a whole lot of back and forth with the other characters besides Barry about whether or not they should tell because now they're being threatened. And this changes everything. And Barry's like, no, it doesn't. We made a pact. But... In the book, Julie and the gang all decide that they will tell. Even Barry has a change of heart because yeah. he tries to make a phone call. Anyway, but they've decided they're going to come clean. We don't see what happens with yeah, that because they still the book killed ends. a kid. They didn't yes. kill a murderer. The book ends with Ray saving Julie from the guy trying to strangle her and then professing his love in a way. And we know that they're going to turn themselves in. And what surprised me about reading the book and the context of the book and being all these people, like multiple people in the book are like they're fresh back from the Iraq war, which is really the Vietnam war in the original book. And not to put too fine a point on it, but I just think there's so much emotional weight around the book that isn't there in the movie because it, it's ultimately just very different scenarios, even though they hit someone, killing a kid. Yeah. The responsibility of killing... Well, the movie a, just uses the book as a jumping off point. Totally. But the fact that the book was written in, leading up to and published in 73, coming off of the heels of Vietnam and how people felt about... The war that we were fighting. It was still going on when she published What did it in 75? Everything okay? Fall of Saigon, 1975. Oh, hey. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think it's interesting the parallels that you could draw for a reading audience in the 70s of war and personal responsibility and casualties of war and the complexities of... Uh, and I kind of feel like Bud even talks about it, doesn't he? Where he says, you think you're going over there to do something righteous. You're doing, you're going for a good cause, but then the things that happen and there are kids who live there and they're dying just because they happen to live where a war is happening. And it's an interesting speech. And there's no war happening in the whatever southwestern state that these kids are living in, in the book. But I guess, obviously, the idea of responsibility and, and death and all of that stuff is in the air when Lois Duncan is writing this book. And I think the book is really such a dark book for teenagers, I think. But in, in, in the movies, good. It, it had been, I mean, Desert Storm was kind of a blip. You know, didn't last long and didn't have many lasting effects mm -hmm. in one sense. And so for a movie in 98 people coming back from war changed was an outdated concept. It wasn't a relevant issue at the time. Yeah. And Vietnam and you know Iraq and Afghanistan, they're just very different wars as far totally. as how they're reabsorbed back by the American public. Yeah, which is why I so think it's you, so you important. You really can't just translate. You can't just no. take Vietnam, do a like find and replace, and just write in the word Iraq. Which is what they did. have it be like, oh, it's basically the same. And the little interview that I read at the end of my update, Lois Duncan, talk, they talk about that. And she kind of says, well, you know, it's horrifying to me that this many years later, you could just replace it with a new war we were in the middle of that people weren't happy we were fighting. And, it is and a in a sense, you can. But I think, I think what you're saying is true, is that there's just a very specific thing about Vietnam that doesn't translate. But I think what charms me is I found... Number one, there are discussion questions at the end of the update oh. that I have for a teacher to go over with her class or his class. I also found other teacher guides for the other books in the battery of books that Lois Duncan updated. And I think that means that 
a lot of her books, they do have a moral center and, or at least raise the questions, which I really like and I appreciate about her. And it should be noted yeah. that Lois Duncan was kind of shocked and horrified at the movie because it was so different from what she did with the book because the teenagers, the characters she created were getting cut to pieces and that's not what her book was about. And also, additionally, she was kind of turned off by the violence because her own daughter at the age of 18 was shot to death in her car while she was driving down the road. Yes, which you can read about. And Kat, I know you're a fan of true crime and true crime <sighs> books. I am. So now that you're aware of who killed my daughter, looks like it occurred in 1989, quite some time after the book. I know what you did last summer was, mm -hmm. was published. The book about the incident came out in 1992. And Lois Duncan, from what I understand, was not satisfied with the police explanation. No. Of uh, her daughter's killing and went on a search of her own. So and they're still on the search today. I mean, they've never determined. It's still an unsolved case as far as the family is concerned. The cops said random drive-by shooting. And they outline this on their website a lot as well. And you can go look at it due to the fact that the daughter had been living with this guy who she broke up with and... It was suspected that he was a part of, like, a drug ring. She went to a friend's house and talked about how afraid of him she was. And there were timeline issues about when she left her house. And anyway, Lois Duncan and her family do not believe that, as the cops say, it was just some random shooting. She believes that the daughter was Kate, uh, which is her name's Caitlin, was about to blow the whistle on some mm. nefarious deeds that her boyfriend was involved in and that he didn't like it and that she was killed. One of the things that Lois Duncan said, and by the way, she doesn't say, like, the movie's trash. She was just surprised, and she says very eloquently that it's difficult for her to watch violence be glamorized, and that's what she feels, I know what you did last summer, does, when she's been so closely touched with violence in her own life. And I, I have never had, a, you know, a loved one die that way, so I can't speak to that personally. But I do believe, and have always believed, in the power of horror to be cathartic and... You know, I don't believe that it necessarily encourages real-life violence. And I, to bring it back around to war, I was just watching an interview, incidentally, the other day uh, with Eli Roth, where he talked about how he talked to this guy who had been in some branch of the military who told him that Hostel was, like, their favorite movie to watch on base when they were in, like, a war-torn country. It was what everyone wanted to watch was like these, his awful, gory yeah. torture films. And Eli Roth talked to this guy and they kind of talked about how these guys are over there seeing truly awful things happen, watching their friends die. And they're not really allowed to be sad about it or show weakness or, you know, they have to be strong. They have to put on a brave face when all these really awful things are happening. So for them to watch a movie that's like violent and kind of scream and, and be like grossed out and kind of get their catharsis gets it out for them so i'm not saying that like well lois you should just learn to enjoy watching teenagers get murdered because you know just because your daughter was one doesn't it mean you can't enjoy a public it purpose you know it's not i'm not telling her she should enjoy it i'm just i just think i guess two separate things it, it's unfortunate and i see where she's coming from at the same time i god i just love slashers and i believe in the cathartic power of horror sure and uh I'm not really up for much of Eli Roth, but it's good to know it's there if my uh, life's pressures ever get upped. Yeah. If you're following that formula. 
I'll just watch these sort of a tamer horror movies to deal with my rather pedestrian problems. <laughs> have to tell you in case you don't know mm -hmm. that the scene in the first I Know What You Did last summer, I don't know how much Dawson's Creek you watched, but there is an episode of, I think in season one of Dawson's Creek, called The Scare, that is really delightful and fun, and, and there are several episodes throughout that series, which has seven seasons, that play to Kevin Williamson's like love of horror. Sorry about the stereo, but that song makes me crazy. <laughs> okay, come on. Let's get the show back on the road. But in this episode, it opens with Dawson and Joey watching a movie, as they often do, on his bed. Are they watching... They're watching the scene where Helen is getting chased and screaming and the fisherman's walk coming after her. Right. And Joey's like, ah, turn it off. And that scene really, I mean, it gets me every time. But I love that they're watching that. And I also came across... Um, so, I know you did last summer came out like about four or five months before the not long it's like this right. was in october and then dawson's creek yeah was in january and i know what you did last summer was a huge hit and yeah. so in the first season dawson's walking into maybe it might be the first episode i don't know into the video store he works in no no no. he's walking into well there might be one of the video store but the screenshot i saw was him walking into the film classroom and behind him is a poster of i know what you did last summer cute Cute um, and fun. This was the only observation I wanted to make, and it's not even about the book or the movie, which I think we've covered both pretty well. Yeah. But of Kevin Williamson, the man who we wanted to credit, but weren't sure if we could until this movie came out. Like, he was a big force behind Scream, but like I said, it wasn't until this came out, and then Dawson's Creek and the Scream sequels and the faculty and teaching Mrs. Tingle, did we really get to know the, the Kevin Williamson touch and could give credit where credit was due for sort of steering horror in a new direction for a while there I mean, popular horror definitely absolutely i don't think you can overstate that yeah but as celebrity horror writer just as we caught on to who he was and what it was he was contributing boom he comes out with dawson's creek <laughs> the Gave allusions to occasional horror things, just like, you know... Dawson was a big fan describing. of... Yeah. Dawson loved playing but spooky really pranks on his friends like like you love to do. Just took on, you know, small town, teenage, almost... It's apparently semi-autobiographical. Semi, yeah. Semi. Particularly once they introduced the gay character, I'd have to say. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But that was, while maintaining the North Carolina-ness of his previous work... Really just went in another direction mm -hmm. from all the horror he had been doing, which spared the world or cheated the world out of the following thing, which I looked for last night and couldn't find. Therefore, I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist, which is when you reach his stature as a horror icon, someone's going to come to you with like a photo shoot or an Amex commercial and be like, we want to put you in this sort of spooky setting. I, I refer to the uh, the Stephen King yeah. American Express. I think we've commercial. mentioned that on this podcast we, we, before. We did once where he's got like a raven and there's lightning outside and thunder. And we're like, is this supposed to be his house? Is this, or are we supposed to think this is where he lives? So instead of saying I wrote Carrie, I carry the American Express card. Or then years later, also American Express, M. Night Shyamalan 
did the commercial where he's in like this like restaurant of the weird and damned where everything's kind of really off and mm-hmm. spooky. And he's just like sitting at the table around all these characters. Or when HBO did the Spawn cartoon, each one would be introduced by uh, Todd McFarlane. And he'd be in this like super creepy room. Like this is where he works at this table surrounded by fog. Mm-hmm. We've been spared that. From Kevin Williamson. Are you saying it's because Dawson's Creek kind of neutered that? It flipped the script. Yeah. As soon as we saw who he was and what he could do, it then got switched over. Changed it up on us. To Dawson's Creek and Wasteland. On an unrelated, on a different note, Dawson's Creek is. uh, There are many aspects and many seasons of that show that are really, truly just great. A lot of which is just due to his awesome characters and the writing and everything. I'm very, very fond of that, especially the first season. Crazy good. And for, you know, what's fun is I was prey to what people would determine to be kind of generic teenage hokum at that time of my life because it, Dawson's Creek came along at a great time for me and I got really invested in it. But for a young person who was also into horror already, as I had been from being a teeny weeny little person, and I was also into Buffy and, you know, I loved scary movies and I watched them all the time. The fact that Dawson's Creek, which I was also heavily invested in, gave me little snippets of heart. There were whole episodes that were, like, scary. There's one with a serial killer. Like, there's Hmm. a serial killer on the loose. You see it on the news. I I don't know if it's the same episode where they're watching I Know You Did Last Summer, because there are a couple of spooky episodes. But this guy comes and asks Joey for directions outside a convenience store while the guys are trying to buy, get someone to buy them wine. And um, he's very nice and charming, and then goes away and then there's stuff later in the episode where like the lights go out in the house and they're all kind of scared all this stuff's happening at the very end of the episode they show a picture they say like he's been caught and it was that guy guy. Um, so there's fun stuff like that throughout the series where there are nods to like spooky stuff and dawson loves around halloween he'll like put a fake finger in somebody's sandwich at lunch and watch them go he loves scary stuff that's in Roseanne. And so for me, like, yes, most of Dawson's Creek is who's sleeping with who, who's having an existential crisis, what are we going to do about this character dying? But there were those, it was peppered with fun little nods to horror that made me really happy as a horror fan. So I know Dawson's Creek isn't for everyone, but I think it gets a bad rap for being silly. Uh, And it certainly did get that way. And and not every season and episode is wonderful, but it it holds a great spot in my heart. Just in case you were... uh... Worried that Kevin Williamson spent all of his money. He also created Vampire Diaries. So he'll be okay. He is doing just fine. He's just fine. And from the people I know who have met him, they say he is really a great guy. Super nice. All right. So thanks, buddy, for bringing us I Know What You Did Last Summer. Marshall, are you a fan, by the way? Like, we know how I feel about this movie. Is this something you've oh, yeah. watched I lots was, of times? You, do you love it? I well, at the time, wonder if it just hit me at the right age or something. I was quite swept up in, in the new direction horror was taking and that it was more mainstream than ever and more palatable than ever. And this fell right into line with everything that was coming out at the time between this and disturbing behavior. and God, I love that movie. Uh, <laughs> and the Scream sequels. It gave that whole... It, it made Scream more than just a fluke. It helped make it a, a, a subgenre. A catalyst. Yeah. For everything that came after. Well, yeah, Scream was a catalyst. But I know what he did last summer. Turned it into a genre. Sure, yeah. A, sub, a horror subgenre. Yeah, fair that enough. I, that I could really get behind. I would say you know. slashers are my favorite subgenre. You? 
Yes. Well, I mean, he didn't reinvent the wheel. But no, no, no. I say in general. I'm not saying like oh, in general? that slashers mm. began in 1996, 97. I'm saying like, I think one of the reasons I love Scream so much and I love I knew it did last summer, apart from when they hit me, which I think can't be discounted, is that they are part of a genre that I love, 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 love. Obviously, you know, I love Halloween, the movie Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween. But I don't, I mean, could you point a finger Slasher to your favorite subgenre? Discounts the supernatural. Mm-hmm. It does. And, um... I think I lean more towards that. Okay. Less ghost, more monster. Yeah. I'm more down with the monsters. Cool. Maybe we'll have to... Well, we should do some monsters soon. Let's. You and I. Let's do that. Okay. okay. All right. Well, from uh, from us boys and ghouls, maybe next, next month will be uh, something a little more monster heavy. Uh, but until then... Beware the moon. Beware. Beware.